Hey everybody! Hi there, welcome back to Planet and God. We are continuing our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. We're almost near the end. Yep, we're on chapter 21. Chapter 21, so hopefully you've read it. If not, pause, go back, read it, come back with your notebook. We'll go through our thoughts and uh, let's dive in. All right. So I have some opening comments before we dive into chapter 21 because chapter 21 is, is a important chapter through the life of the Messiah here. Um, we are now entering Holy Week. That is the last week of Jesus' life. So this is the week that um, of the Passover sacrifice and the week of Jesus' death on the cross. So I've done a study on the harmony of the Gospels which is really cool to see all of the Gospels put together and all of the events that happened. Um, and what's interesting to note is that in Matthew's account, he does not focus on dates, right? So you're not going to figure out what day each event is occurring in in the Gospel of Matthew. Instead, what he does is he focuses on who Jesus is. His focus is on Jesus entering Jerusalem to judge it and then to be crucified, die for our sins, and then to be raised on the third day. That is his focus. So if you're looking for a complete order of events, Matthew's not the gospel to do that. He's going to kind of jump around all over the place to make sure that the last week of Jesus' life fits in with the narrative that he, and the audience he is writing for. So that's, that is the Larry opening notes. And then we get into verses 1 through 11 with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So before we get, I, I noted like 1 through 5, specifically okay. about the donkey. I thought it was really cool that, you know, God was preparing yeah. this donkey. And how much more does he prepare us in our lives? That's kind of my right. application from it. But... I just thought that was really an interesting thing that, you know, he was preparing an animal, an, an animal, <laughs> yeah. which it was a For very, service. it was very important. Right. Right. A lot of times we go through life and we think about like, what is our purpose? And if he can find purpose with a donkey, yeah. you know, and use an animal, how much more does he do that in our lives? Right. So I just really liked that. That is nifty. And yeah, the purpose of the donkey was to fulfill Zechariah 9 9. Oh, the you prophecy stole it. I did. I was going to say yes. that next. I was going to say that they, that, you know, Jesus was treated as a king and in this moment is like prophecy is being fulfilled. Yes. You steal her. I did, but did you, you didn't have the prophecy written down, did you? No, not where it was. Uh, yeah. You can have that part. I, yes. <laughs> yes. That's a win. Really, the, the significance of these events lie in the date. Like, this is the only one that I'll really make a date mention of. Uh, maybe a couple others. Uh, but the significance of the date here. This is um, Sunday, the 10th of Nisan, at least according to uh, the number of studies I've done. I, that's what, where I kind of land on it. Um, and what's important about this date it's the Sunday before the Passover and what do the Jews do on the Sunday before the Passover so well I might be jumping ahead but this is when 
the priest is supposed to come in with the lamb. Not come in with the lamb, but set the lamb aside. So on the Sunday before Passover, the lamb, the chosen lamb for the sacrifice is set aside and then it will be tested over the week. And right to make sure that it is spotless and well, there's more than no one. Blemishes. This is within each right, family, right? Right. right. But the the lambs. It are sounds set confusing aside. sometimes because it sounds yeah. like it's just one, but really it's each family has their own. Well, yes, but the point is, is that this is the day that the lamb. This is, is that set they aside. pick the lamb. Right. Yeah. The lamb is set aside for the sacrifice, and so. Jesus, in presenting himself this way, is presenting himself as the lamb for the sacrifice. Yes, I agree. He is coming in and presenting himself as the lamb. And then as we go through the rest of Holy Week here, um, Jesus will be tested. We're going to see that coming up in this week. And in the, uh, I think it's 23 is when we see the testing of the Messiah. Yeah, it's really so, interesting stuff. Yeah, so he's setting himself up as the Passover lamb. So not only is he fulfilling Zechariah, but he's fulfilling Leviticus when Leviticus sets up how the lamb right. is to be set aside. Right, going is, over the right going over the sacrifices. Yep. As the lamb, so as the lamb is set aside, Jesus is now setting himself aside in accordance with the Mosaic law. As the lamb is tested, Jesus will now be tested to be determined that he is spotless and without sin and without blemish. Okay, so the next section I have is 12 through 17. Really? I did 12 and 13 as one little section just because uh, you have Jesus here, the second account of Jesus cleansing the temple. Uh, He does the same thing at the beginning of his ministry in the book of John. We kind of missed that in Matthew's account, but it's just important to note that this is the second time it's happened. Uh, And this event, what Jesus is doing is he's exercising lordship over the temple. Right? He is declaring that he is the Lord over the temple. And then just, I made a practical application note on on that. Um, In that, in our churches, we need to use his example of cleansing out the money changers and those that use gimmicks and whatnot to infiltrate our churches, right? You have churches all over the place. I think uh, one of our elders, Mike, was opening up the Lord's Supper and he was talking about how a pastor entered in on a zip line. He just came in on a zip line and it was just this whole hoopla and fireworks and this, that. Like, these are gimmicks. And these are the things that we need to be casting out of our churches as Jesus is our example, casting out the money changers, the people using gimmicks and whatnot to um, just to propagate lies. Yes. (laughs) Thanks for that. Um, I was thinking, well, I mean, this was the temple and where the Lord technically, like, it was his house. Yeah. And so I guess that the way I, if I'm going to pull application from it, I would think that we are currently the temple. No, and to purge ourselves. Right. Of 
Not that you're gimmick. wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but thanks. that's I guess <laughs> where I, I I drive it more that way than you drive it in the more spiritual way where I'm looking at it as the more Well no, because it is it, it is important within our churches as well. But some of those things I don't think are bad. I think they're only bad if it's like occurring all the time and the the focus is on that instead of on the teaching of the Lord. Does that make well, sense? That's, that's what a lot of the mega churches are like, though, where the focus well, is on the experience and the rock concert. Some of them. Most of them. I don't disagree. I'm just saying. I can't uh, lump them all together because I don't think all of them are like that. Okay. But I agree. Yeah. You know, they're... I, I wasn't trying to... I know. <laughs> Anywho. Anywho. Um, so, verses 14 through 17... <laughs> 14 through 17. The next section, you have the healing of the blind and Jesus upsetting Pharisees. Uh, he continues to meet the needs of, of the needy and receiving attacks. You have the, the chief priests and the scribes. They become uh, hostile, angry with Jesus. Uh, he, they even go on to say, do you hear what he is saying? As if Jesus was forbidding the people the little children from addressing him as the Messiah. There, what's interesting though is if Jesus was not the Messiah, this was the time to do that, to make that announcement. He could have denied his messianic claims right then and there and stopped this whole show, uh, but he doesn't. He instead quotes Psalm 8-2 and leaves the religious leaders to ponder that truth that the Lord would be worshipped regardless. Right. So the next section was 20 to 22. 18 through 22. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I just noted things from verse Later. 22. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so you have the cursing of the fig tree here. This is another one. Matthew's account doesn't make note of it, but it actually occurs over two days when you do a harmony of the Gospels. Which, it's fine that Matthew's book doesn't note that. Again, his point is that he's trying to show that Jesus is entering Jerusalem to judge it prior to his death. Right, because doesn't the fig tree represent Jerusalem? The fig tree represents Israel. I mean Israel. At large, yes. Um, yeah, the fig I'm tree sorry, commonly right. <laughs> represents Israel. Um, Israel the, as a nation. As a nation, yeah. right. The fig tree often will bear fruit before its season bear edible fruit before its season and so that when it uh, when a fig tree does that it's a sign or an omen that it's going to be a good crop right you'll be able to get more from the tree this well there's i i've heard this too that they also there's fruit on there that is not edible yeah so like you go up to it and it's it's not it seems like it is but right it's not really. but it's not yeah um, and what's really cool is that this is the only miracle where Jesus destroys something instead of blesses or heals it. He destroys it. And in this symbolic action, he is talking about how the cursed fig tree, being a picture of Israel, will be destroyed, how Israel will be destroyed in the coming destruction of AD 70. Rome is going to come in and destroyed Jerusalem and all of Israel in judgment for rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. Yeah. Really, uh, the whole point of the tree being fruitless at this point 
while the nation of Israel will be fruitless, is fruitless at that time, they will continue to be fruitless until the end of the tribulation when they call out for the Messiah. However, while the, this is a national judgment, there are individuals, individual Jews, who can still come to faith in Jesus Christ. Right. So this may be a national judgment. There's still individual, a believing remnant that do and still does come to faith today. Yeah. And then I just wanted to make mention of verse 22. I'm going to read it here. And whatever things mm -hmm. you ask in prayer, believing you will receive a lot of people will try to take this verse and turn it into a vending machine, turn God into a vending machine. You have the whole name it and claim it movement. If I name it and I claim it, it is mine. Right. I think it's so um, important to note that it's always within the will of God. Exactly. It is within the will of God. You need to take something like this in accordance with all the other teachings of prayer. This is just one aspect of it. You know, there's... There's other things about prayer that you need to come with a pure heart. It needs to be done in faith. You need to have your sins forgiven, right? And then it all has to be done within the will of the Lord. Right. So it's, yes, you can take one verse out of context, but, you know, you take one verse out of context, you can get find yourself in a whole world of hurt. Yep. Verses 23 to 27? Yep, verses 23 through 27. We have Jesus and his authority being questioned here. Uh, this follows, Jesus follows the Jewish pattern of asking a, answering a question with a question. Um, he asked them, the baptism of John, was it by the authority of, of heaven or of man? And so they have one way to go because the people took John to be a prophet. So if they say by the authority of man, you got people that would be upset. If they, he, if they say from the authority of heaven, well then that draws the fact that they didn't believe John and they're not believing Jesus. So they're kind of at a catch-22 here. So they instead to plead the fifth, that they don't have an answer and so neither does Jesus. He doesn't respond to their question as well because they won't answer his question. Right. I love the format though of how they taught back then because yeah. in it gets you thinking. It does. You know, instead of like you trying to think of an answer, you're supposed to like ask questions to get it. Right. To make your mind like think, think even, about in a the different answer. way. Right. And, right. I really like that. Yeah. And then what's interesting though is that while Jesus doesn't answer their question, he questions them and they refuse to answer. He refuses to answer. He does still answer them. But he does so in the form of parables. And that's what we're going to get from now. We see two parables in chapter 22 or 21 here. And we'll get the third parable in chapter 22. So all three of these parables go together. And they all go with this altercation, if you will, with the Pharisees. Yeah. So uh, the next section, well, it's the last section, actually. Well, we get two parables here, so 28 through oh, you, 32. You separate the I parables. did separate the parables, okay. yes. Even though they all, from the altercation with the Pharisees to the three parables is one section, I broke them down into smaller chunks. Okay. Um, so 28 through 32, you have the parable of the two sons. 
And in that, the key point is that sonship is determined by obedience. The son who said he would go but didn't represents the Jewish leaders and who reject Jesus as the Messiah. And then you have the son who said he would go, not go, but then goes. This represents the sinners, the tax collectors, those people who did not follow the Mosaic law, but did follow Jesus. Yeah. And then um, the next parable of the wicked vine dressers. Yeah, the wicked vine dressers, 33 through 46 to wrap up the chapter. Uh, just to help break this down. And a lot of what I get from this comes from um, throughout the Old Testament when, especially in the book of Isaiah, he breaks down vine dressers and the landowners and the vineyard. We see this very common throughout the Old Testament, this, this breakdown. So you have the landowner representing God the Father, the Son represented by the Messiah, the vineyard is Israel, you have the vine growers, those are the Jewish leaders at the time, and then the servants, there's two servants that are sent, two groups of servants. The first group of servants are the pre- and post-exile prophets, and then the second group of servants represents John the Baptist. So you have all of the prophets that are sent in, that are killed and destroyed. Then you have John the Baptist, who Jesus calls the greatest of, of these, who is sent in and killed. Essentially, it, the whole host of it is that the Messiah will be rejected by this generation. And so when he's rejected by this generation, the kingdom offer is removed. And then in verse 42, Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, and in that we see the messianic cry that the Jewish leaders have to lead the people in saying, right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm not even going to try to say it in Hebrew. It sounds so beautiful in Hebrew, but this American tongue cannot pronounce it very good. Can't wait to get into heaven when I can hopefully get a new tongue. Hopefully. Hopefully. Um, so it's, right, this uh, kingdom offer is removed from that generation and given to a future generation, the generation that will go through the tribulation and cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Which is another prophecy. Which is another prophecy. Yeah. I love prophecy. It's, it's all cool. over the place. It is. Um, and then I just want to make an important note here about verse 43. Uh, verse 43, I'm going to read it real quick. It says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. A lot of times this verse can be used to validate replacement theology. And what pre replacement theology teaches is that the church replaced Israel. And so now you don't have to worry about Israel, it's the church. No, that is not, not true. true. Yeah, I hate to break it to you there. Um, the context is clear that this is not the whole nation of Israel that is rejected. It is the leaders, the nation of that generation. The generation that saw the Messiah. The generation that rejects the Messiah. The kingdom offer was withdrawn from that generation, 
it will be re-offered to a future generation, that is the generation that goes through the great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the great and terrible day of the Lord, you name it. The thing that hasn't occurred yet. Prophecy. The wrath of God, <laughs> right. Prophecy on man. Um, that is the generation that will cry out for the Messiah to save them. Yep. And we're getting closer and closer every day. We are. And then verse 44, uh, Jesus uses the imagery of Psalm 118 for a personal application of how the Messiah will be a stumbling stone for Israel. Right? Jesus, to this day, is a stumbling stone for Israel, the nation. And even at, at an individual level, you see that, how the Jews treat one of their own that becomes a believer in Yeshua. Right? They're often kicked out, ostracized, removed from their the synagogue, removed from family fellowship. It's crazy, but it's what, what happens. He is a stumbling stone. All right, anything else? I've, I've been talking a lot. Do you have anything? No. Mm -mm. Well, I mean, nothing. Okay. Just to kind of wrap this up, so this is the first two. There's a third parable we'll read in the next chapter, uh, chapter 22, the parable of the marriage feast. And so remember the context of what we've just been speaking about for this parable. It's not something that stands on its own. Remember the chapter breaks, verse breaks are not inspired. They're just there to help us read it better. So Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, right, still, who rejected the Messiah. And so he is still continuing that parabolic teaching of what will happen to them. Yep, sounds good. Cool. All right, we'll see you guys in the next one. Sounds good. Bye.